A young perspective on hot button issues around the world. This is the Hub. Hello and welcome to the Hub on CGTN. I'm Wang Guan in Beijing. Just two days after the recent election in China's Taiwan region, Nauru, a small island country in the South Pacific, severed relations with Taipei. Its parliament has swiftly approved motion to restore diplomatic relations with Beijing. While Taipei and Washington regretted such unstoppable shift, China and Nauru are now planning for their future cooperation. How will the bilateral relationship evolve going forward between China and Nauru? What lies ahead for the China Pacific Island country's community of shared future, especially given Nauru's participation? Now, to delve deeper into these questions, we have in Beijing studio Yang Xiyu, senior research fellow at the China Institute of International Studies. Now, Professor Yang, let's get to it.、Mm -hmm. China and Nauru,、uh, or rather Nauru and Taipei, severed relations, broke diplomatic、yeah. relations、mm -hmm. two days after、yeah. Taiwan's regional election.、Yeah. What do you make of the timing? Well, I think two points、uh, need to be noticed. Uh, firstly, as you mentioned, the timing is very important.、Uh, two days after you mentioned、uh, the so-called local election, and、uh, Nauru swept、uh, their position to Beijing. That indicates that Taiwan is part of China, and also that indicates the、uh, Nauru's decision is echoed with the major international trends of one China principle. That is based on the Cairo、uh, uh, Declaration, Potsdam Proclamation, and the multi multinational treaty, the Japanese instrument for surrender, and the China Japan Peace Treaty. All of the、uh, legal documents、uh, define that、uh, Taiwan is a part of China, and that there's only one China in the world. So I think、uh, Nauru's decision really reflects the major trends of the. Uh, international community really reflects the historical and the legal truth of Taiwan's status quo、uh, nowadays. Professor Yang, if we look at the pattern,、mm -hmm. uh, whenever there is a, a major provocation from Washington or Taipei,、uh, especially it's DPP, the pro-independence、mm -hmm. party,、mm -hmm. or、uh, when there is a major election、um, going on、uh, that is,、um, you know, selecting or electing. Uh, Pro-independence secessionist leaders.、Mm -hmm. uh, there tends to be a, a country breaking so-called diplomatic relations with Taipei.、Mm -hmm. So, what do you make of the timing of this all? Firstly, I need to say, no matter what kind of results of the election, the reality of the Taiwan status quo, the reality of Taiwan is part of China, cannot be changed by any results of the election. No matter、uh, Mr. A or Mr. B was wrong.、Uh, and uh, regarding to U.S.、Uh, response both to the、uh, result of the election and the Nauru's decision, I I'm not surprised at all. Sim simply because for a long time Washington has played the so-called two hands、uh, tactics. On one hand, they have to abide by their commitment、uh, based on the international law and the international rules. But on that hand, from their strategic.、Uh, Interests, especially、uh, geopolitical strategic interests, they have been seeking for separation、uh, between Taiwan and the mainland for a long time. So, just based on that, the so-called two-hand tactics, on one hand, they never dare to say they support 
Taiwan's independence. But on the other hand, in many cases, they do something really supporting the Taiwan's uh, independent trends. I think the latest position, the response from Washington, really reflects their uh, two hands uh, t- uh, tactics. And regarding to uh, the uh, newly elected uh, person, I don't think. Uh, William Lai. Uh, yeah, I don't think uh, uh, Mr. Lai, no matter what he said, he cannot make any changes of the trends of Chinese unification. He cannot make any change of the Taiwan's legal status quo as a part of China. Of course, uh, de jure. Taiwan is part of China and uh, that is recognized by the United Nations, uh, by over 180 countries in the world, by the international organizations, and even by Taiwan's own quote-unquote constitution, which claim the exact same territory, or pretty much so, as that of Beijing. So you recognize either Taipei or Beijing. You cannot do both. Um, there are so many questions regarding uh, the timing of the Nauru switch of diplomatic recognition, diplomatic allegiance. Uh, if our audience remember well, in 2017, Panama broke relations with Taipei and established relations with People's Republic of China. And then uh, Donald Trump made a very controversial phone call with Tsai Ing-wen, then leader of Taiwan, the outgoing uh, leader. And at that time, I had this exclusive interview with the then president of Panama, Juan Valela, asking him about the timing, why Panama made this diplomatic switch. Was there so-called greenback diplomacy, checkbook diplomacy involved? Let's listen to this interview in 2017. Uh, but on the other side of Taiwan Strait, and the leader of Taiwan, Tsai Ing-wen, upon your announcement of the switch, issued a statement expressing anger and um, regret, saying that Taiwan will not compete with Beijing for, quote-unquote, checkbook diplomacy. Was that a fair and accurate characterization of what happened behind the scenes? I didn't ask anything to China. I just did the correct thing to do for my country, for our people and for the, for the future of a strong relationship with China and Panama. But there were talks here, especially in the Western press, saying that uh, there might be you know, special deals or economic assistance. Uh, Not at all. Not at all. Uh, Professor Yang, what do you make of uh, these countries that broke relations with Taipei uh, and then about the accusation uh, that says, uh, you know, Beijing, um, it, it's all about Beijing's diplomatic and financial assistance to these countries that made them switch their allegiance? Well, I think uh, some uh, many of such allegations you mentioned uh, are groundless. Let's look at the reality. No matter what kind of countries, no matter what locations of the countries, China has contributed greatly and more and more to many, many varied countries all over the world for connectivities. We call it as a Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, that is designed to connecting the global world more efficiently, more green-oriented, uh, uh, and more sustainable, uh, sustainability. And uh, regarding to the newly established uh, diplomatic relation with China, uh, the, the countries with China, I think the economic assistances are only part of the bilateral relation. For example, Nauru. Yes, we we will certainly provide economic uh, assistances with economic corporations with Nauru, but not because of the diplomatic relation, but because of the mutual interest uh, between the two countries. And uh, so, I think the so-called uh, the dollar diplomacy is, you know, uh, is groundless. 
Yeah, very interesting. Uh, in fact, um, how do you think this uh, you know, uh, election in Taipei uh, and this diplomatic um, uh, developments will impact China's relations with the United States, which have shown signs of warming up, and now there's this election and then potentially confrontation? It's a very key question, and I, I believe many observers both inside China uh, and outside China will closely watch the question you mentioned. Say, what kind of effects uh, on China-US relation after the Taiwan local election? I, I think that not depend on Beijing, but depends on Washington. Say, if Washington make use of the results of the election, to intervene the China's domestic issue, say, the unification, then that will be up and down of the, the storm in the China-U.S. relation. If U.S. really sincerely insist on one China policy, I don't think such results of election in Taiwan have any effects on China-U.S. relations, simply because Taiwan has no official relation with Washington. And Washington set up an official relation with Beijing covering all over China, uh, all over China, including mainland and, 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 and Taiwan. But uh, some of American politicians want to make use of the uh, existing uh, separation between mainland and uh, Taiwan to, for their own geostrategic interests. That will make uh, big troubles, not only for China, but also for the United States and also for the peoples across the street, including mainland and Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And then uh, going forward, what is there between China and Nauru when it comes to diplomatic, political, and trade investment cooperations? Well, I think the uh, normalization between China, that is the largest developing country, and uh, another is, uh, m maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think the smallest developing country. I think that will produce two significant meanings one meaning is the uh, mutual prosperities between China and the Nauru, simply because China has their own advantages and the Nauru has their own either. And uh, uh, the cooperation between the two, based on the equal footing, will produce win-win results for both of the sides. And the other meaning is, as I mentioned, the largest developing country and the smallest developing country will set up a very unique model based on the equal footing for the win-win cooperation. That will set up a, a set of experiences for many countries' cooperation. I think the second meaning will produce profound influences all over the world. And the South Pacific is a key region of the world. Uh, yep. It lies between China and the United States, the North and the South and the East and the West. Yep. Uh, do you think this can have ripple effects for cooperation between China and Pacific Island countries going forward? Yeah, I think uh, uh, as the second meaning I mentioned earlier, China and the Nauru Corporation will provide a very useful uh, models and experiences for cooperation between China and other South Pacific uh, uh, Islands uh, uh, countries, uh, simply because uh, Nauru share many similarities with the other islands of uh, state islands at their area. Therefore, China and uh, Nauru cooperation 
will explore more means, models, methods for broader and broader cooperation, not only for the two countries, but also for the countries uh, else in this region. Thank you so much, Professor Yang. Uh, thank you so much for your insights. Now, in the South Pacific and beyond, China's diplomatic initiatives and collaborative endeavors faced vicious attacks, I would say, mainly from the Western media, if you look at their narratives on China, uh, from the left and the right and the, the center, Fox News, uh, MSNBC, New York Times, you name it. So up next, we'll be joined by Jan Oberg, a Danish scholar who will reveal the behind-the-scenes workings of U.S. media. Stay tuned. In January 2022, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the American Competes Act. It is supposed to be an industrial policy for semiconductor production and supply chain resiliency. But the bill contains some 500 million U.S. dollars for media outlets to produce journalism for overseas audiences that is critical of China. Why would a U.S. domestic manufacturing bill plan for budget on foreign news coverage? What kinds of narratives on China would such strategy entail? To understand more about how Western media depicts China, I'm joined today by Jan Oberg. He's a Danish scholar with extensive experience concerning global affairs. Welcome to the Hub, Jan. Let's start with the America Competes Act. Uh, this act is supposed to be about chips and semiconductors. It's about competition with China. The great power rivalry, as was uh, built by the Washington policymakers and elites. But it does contain clauses on you know manufacturing narratives on china 500 million dollars will be spent in the next few years um, on uh, you know uh, directing the news coverage and uh, news angles on china uh, depicting negative coverages for a country that prides itself on the freedom of speech freedom of media and freedom of the marketplace what do you make of this uh, very uh, move well, it's obvious that these two things are not comparable. Either you have free media or you don't. If you have government supported uh, by millions of dollars, uh, of course, that means you are not free to write and do what you want, according to journalistic standards. However, this is nothing new. We have public service media in all Western countries, you know, like the Danish Broadcasting Company or something like that. It's all state financed by tax people. We have uh, private media in the West, which are uh, have to operate within the framework of, of commercialism, of policing their owners, etc. We have intelligence services who, since the 60s, have worked with influencing media. The Americans have what is called the United States Agency for Global Media, which are totally state-financed, USAGM, as it's called. Then you have think tanks, which are often financed by Pentagon and State Department, and the media would use experts from them to uh, give a, a negative view of China. And finally, you have, as you mentioned, the legislation part. Uh, you simply pass a law or you try to pass a law that will set off money for uh, negative, if you will, propaganda. There's nothing new in that. All countries have more or less. The, the embarrassing thing is that the Western world, as you said, professes to be uh, having free media, and that is not the case anymore. Uh, Professor Oberg, how do you envision the $500 million to be used? Uh, after all, if you look at Fox News or New York Times or Wall Street Journal, again, they pride themselves on being free, right? They, they can, uh, of course, receive uh, commercial 
um, uh, donations and commercial uh, money, but uh, not necessarily from the government. Uh, the pride themselves has been uh, separate from the government, uh, you know, the so-called fourth estate. How do you perceive and uh, conceive the money to be used, after all? I suppose a lot of it would go to uh, bureaucracy, of course. I suppose it'll go to training journalists at courses, you know, uh, disseminating particular views throughout social media and all that costs a lot of money. <laughs> we're not only having this problem within the media, we're also having these two words, free and independent in the research world, which often produces uh, information or data or analyzes that are used in the media. I, I, I mean, you take a place like the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, CIPRI, it's basically fin financed by the Swedish government and NATO governments. And I, I doubt that a researcher can be free if, uh, or a research process can be totally free if totally financed by governments. Uh, my own little foundation is totally uh, outside those frameworks because we found out, uh, you know, more than 20 years ago that there were no strings attached when we got some money, very small sum uh, per year from the Swedish government. So it's, it's what I have called the, the military-industrial-media-academic complex. The, the, the academic and the media have become more important, more uniform, and used more for political purposes. And that is a great danger because, as you said, the beauty of the Western thinking about this originally was that the media would be the fourth estate. They would be those who, who place critical questions uh, to people in power. They don't do that anymore. And people like me who are critical to militarism and, and, and that type of stuff are not used anymore in the West. Yeah, Professor, you mentioned NATO in a recent article. You said you do follow Western media news coverage on a daily basis. And I'm quoting you. As you said, they somehow cover only 15% of humanity. But to know what the NATO, EU decision-maker elites are up to, how they uh, legitimate their policies and what they want us to believe is the truth. As for the 85%, generally, negative attitudes preclude curiosity and fair reporting. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I mean, the 15 and 85% has to do with the fact that the, what we call the Western world, if you will, the US, uh, EU, NATO, uh, you might add others, that depends on how you define the Western world or the Occident. They are about 15% of humanity in terms of population. The rest of the world is the 85. And I find an incredible increase in navel-gazing in Western media compared to what I can see, for instance, when I go to CGTN or I go to some others. I see, and that has always been the case, the colonial countries, African media, etc., tells you a lot about what happens in the U.S., but the U.S. basically never tell you, or the Western world's media basically never tells you anything outside the European Union and the United States. We're grossly uninformed in my view, and I follow this for more than 40 years, uh, increasingly uninformed about what happens in the rest of the world. And of course, if you, are, if you have an, a, a citizenry or an audience which are relatively uninformed about the, the non-Western, or if you will, the global East and global South, then it's more easy to, to install a narrative that they will believe in. Whereas if they were well informed about the 85% outside the, outside our own culture, uh, it would be more difficult. So, but I mean, there, there are lots of ways this is done. In a recent report that we published from the Transnational Foundation, we outlined a number of mainstream media manipulation methods, MMMM. And some of them are fake. Some of them are omission, some of them are censorship, some of them are self-censorship, some is framing, 
You have constructed narratives, you have propaganda and disinformation, you have psychological operations, psyops, to install a particular attitude with people who don't know better. Uh, and then you have the cancel culture. Yeah, you talk about so many tactics where Western journalists uh, and their editors, I suppose, are manufacturing content, and, or as uh, Chomsky put it, uh, manufacturing mm -hmm. consent. Uh, what of those tactics, or which ones or ones of those tactics really stand out to you as, you know, incredible and unbelievable? When I have had the probably rather unique experience compared with most citizens that I've worked in a number of conflict and war zones from Yugoslavia in the 90s onwards, mm -hmm. and I have never been to a place anywhere of these conflicts where what I saw myself were comparable or isomorphic or resembled what the media image of that problem was before I left or when I returned. I've often talked with, for instance, United Nations people, and, you know, they might have been three years in Bosnia during the Yugoslav um, dissolution wars, and they would say, when we go home to Sweden and we're on Christmas and we read our newspapers, we ask ourselves, is that the country we've been to the last three years because there's no resemblance? I think that what I'm trying to say is fake and omission has increased a lot in the Western media. It's simply constructed narratives that you want people to believe. And for instance, that Russia's invasion of Ukraine was totally unprovoked. Everybody who studied the last 30 years of European history knows that it was not unprovoked. I'm not defending what Russia did, but what I'm saying is it was not unprovoked. Most people think this is a Russia-Ukraine thing and not a Russia-NATO conflict played out uh, sadly and tragically on Ukraine, Ukraine's territory. You can go to, to, uh, to Syria, which was a regime change attempt. In Marrakesh in 2014 or whenever it was, 100 countries under the leadership of the United States deposed to the, the legitimately elected uh, President Bashar al-Assad and installed what they call the National Council instead. Nobody had elected these people. And after that started, you know, with that started all these terrible events in, in Syria, where I also was. So but what I've been able to see is that there's an agenda rather than a will to establish a broad, diverse, fact-based coverage of what is happening in the world. And that is very, very sad. In May 2022, a Zimbabwean media outlet published the report smearing Chinese companies for allegedly mistreating local employees in Zimbabwe, saying the employee was, quote-unquote, injured, sent to hospital and fired. But the reality was that the employee was not beaten or fired. So why did this outlet publish this false report? It turns out that for every article published slandering content on China, the journalist can receive a remuneration of $1,000 per article from the U.S. Embassy in Zimbabwe through an agent. Is that conceivable for you? <laughs> well, if you're a superpower on its way down and getting more and more desperate because it's losing games here and there, then maybe it's understandable, but it's, uh, it's unacceptable, of course. And then at least you should stop priding yourself of having free media. Then accept that this is state-run media uh, the same way as the West accusing other countries such as China also having only state-run media. But don't try to fool the world that you have free media. That's my basic point. Uh, it, it may be that the U.S. wants to influence media that way with millions of dollars. But then stop saying this uh, untruthful, uh, use these untruthful concepts of independence and freedom.
both in the research world and in the media world. And then your research told us that there has been a systematic, um, complex uh, information warfare and opinion warfare against China on this very issue of the BRI producing and manufacturing uh, negative content uh, related to China's BRI program. Uh, tell us more about that. But the reason we started doing this report was that the associates of the foundation and I myself began to ask ourselves, why is this image of China so uniform? And negatively uniform. <laughs> Uniformly negative, yes. There are very few good stories from China. And we found out, you know, much of it is constructed by think tanks, which allegedly are independent again, but often financed with uh, money from the State Department and Pentagon, more or less, of course. And the other thing is there are some standard stories. I mean, for a period, it's Hong Kong. For a period, it's a genocide in Xinjiang. For a period, it's Tibet. What I found out living in Sweden is that shortly after you've seen a kind of story or theme in American or other Western media, that the journalists in Sweden will begin to cover the same story, the same theme. So Swedish journalists would go from the Swedish broadcasting system, would go to Xinjiang, you know, a couple of months after this whole, uh, you know, why it started because uh, Foreign Minister or State, Secretary of State Pompeo uh, simply declared the last day in his office that what happened in Xinjiang was a genocide. He never, as far as I know, there's not a single page on State Department that documents this. There are a number of so-called independent foundations which uh, thought that they had substantiated that. We, pull, we pulled that apart because much of it is not research worthy of a master's uh, exam. But the long story short is that it, it, it is a repetition of stories that somebody would ought to ask, how do we decide what we cover about China and why don't we do it more independently? I don't think there's any conspiracy here. It's a kind of group think that in the media world, you sit down in the morning at the editorial office and say, what are we going to cover today? And it's within a framework. If somebody says, hey, why don't we do something new today? Let's see what is happening in China that is interesting or how people live or let's make a report, uh, send people over there and see how the farmers are living or their life has become better the last 30 years. You don't raise that because you've already been screened or filtered into your job and somebody with those attitudes would probably not have a job in a Western editorial office. So uh, there's so many mechanisms here and groupthink is very dangerous. It goes back to... Um, an American social psychologist in the 60s who coined the term group thing. Professor Yan Nilberg, uh, thank you so much for your insights, your research and for your time. I look forward to picking your brain again soon, hopefully. Thank, thank you. you so much. It's my pleasure always. That was Yan Nilberg, and that will do it for this edition of The Hub on CGTN. Thank you all so very much for tuning in. I'm Hong Guan in Beijing. Our news coverage continues on CGTN. Bye and take care.